Not Quite Right for Us by Speaking Volumes is a podcast series showcasing innovative and diverse writers from underrepresented communities reflecting on experiences of outsiderness and their defiance against it. Not Quite Right for Us is based on an anthology of the same name, which is published by Speaking Volumes and Flip Tie Publishing. In this episode, we'll hear The Pilgrimage by Amina Atik, Not by Leonie Ross, and The Apocrypha of O by Gail Sobot. Our guide is poet, novelist and musician, Dr. Anthony Joseph. As a poet, I'm always interested in how someone says something. So great writing for me says something or affects me in a, in a new way, even though it uses the same 26 letters of the alphabet or the same way of putting a sentence together. If a writer has a way of finding what I call a, a gap in language, a place where I haven't been before and, and makes me feel something by the arrangement of the words. That to me is what good writing is about. It's about finding corners. It's about finding little holes in language. That's why poetry is so important. The poet is always trying to find how do I say this in a way that hasn't been said before? How do I explain love in a way that I've never read before? How do I, what metaphor can I use that hasn't been seen before? And I think that to me, that level of surprise and newness is what, for me, creates great literature. <laughs> this episode of Not Quite Right for Us is about love. She draws a fine line of blood about three centimetres long. It's common for most writers that you want to create something that endures. You want to create memorialization. James Salter, who's a, who was an American novelist and short story writer, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, he said that unless you write something down, it exists only as a dream. The act of writing something down makes things real. That's one aspect of it. But then the process of how that is done and the influences that are fed into that come from manipulation of language, creolization of literature, the creolization of the canon, finding a way of articulating experience that is somehow outside of the English canon, but yet within the English canon, so somewhere in between, transcending the written page, the act of decolonization, making words do something that sometimes they're not supposed to do, you know, to confuse or to confound or to surprise or startle a reader. For me, it's this whole thing of working within a system and outside of the system as well. Speaking volumes needs to exist because it's mainstream in the sense that it, it has access to sort of mainstream funding, education, mainstream sort of academic realm. But it is also quite a subversive organization in that it exists to support, by and large, writers that might have been marginalized in some way. There's still a sense that we, we are still put into a corner and I think speaking volumes somehow exist to break out of that corner and to pull 
what might be hidden or what might be subjugated or what might be marginalized and pull it into the mainstream. You know, they're one of the more open-minded organizations in terms of the things that they support. The Pilgrimage by Amina Atik. We kissed at the border, but you stole my heart, offering it to Nejran. But I was too young to understand this warfare love story when my tongue is tied to the English home. But we lose ourselves in our peculiar summer pilgrimages to a place elsewhere. But only the diaspora, cross-legged children understand, slurring basic Arabic letters across the cabinet classroom. Your teacher, tall as you, pointing her nose upwards, Never lose yourself in this place, even if you lose yourself. But these children, they dream of abstract checkpoints of stick men in uniform, confessing to the moon with their flags stuck upright. We search for our home in our radical love letters across the English Channel, pushing the French waters when the lifeguard sleeps. We recreate the kiss of the border, rotted in abandonment, stuttering its national anthem, it turns in its grave, and the invaders prowling in your summer journeys is a love story missing. So the school bell rings, the children unpack their tuna butties and smart price orange juice, speaking over each other in their second language, with their mouths full, they suck the life out of them straws, turning sideways. Stories are how people identify themselves and how they articulate their identity in a lot of ways. Who was it? There was somebody there's a reggae song that says half the story has never been told. Some of the, the stories that we don't hear are equally important to the ones that we do hear. So the stories that we hear are only part of the story. But you can never hear the full story. It's, a, you know, what is the full story? What is the full story of people's experience? I think wanting to know everything is also dangerous, you know. Sometimes knowing part of the story is more useful than knowing everything or feeling that you know everything because then it you know if you know part of a story you know part of a history of a people or part of an experience you are then able as an artist sometimes to to fill in the blanks or to create art based on that sort of missing what is missing in the story you know you create a coefficient in there that is you know that's important as well not by Leonie Ross. Diana hadn't intended to steal the knot out of the young woman's belly. She took the knot on a whim, up early, tiptoeing past her son Gabriel's bedroom, trying not to creak her hips or the floorboards, pulling on thick socks and bright blue wellies, smoothing her hair into a bun and stuffing it under one of Jonathan's snug olive-green caps. It was Gabe's first time home from university and the first young woman he'd ever had to stay. There were so many things wrong with the thieving moment. Gabe's barely open bedroom door, Diana's inability to resist looking in at the sleeping couple, the stab she'd been feeling since yesterday afternoon 
stabs, stabs, stabs since they'd arrived. She hadn't wanted to endure the sight of her son lying on his side, his shoulder bare in lemonade light, the rest of him mercifully tucked under the duvet, cupping a woman to his body. But she couldn't help staring, regardless. The girl's head rested on Gabriel's bicep. Her arms were crossed, like embracing herself, and they were holding hands. Susan, that was her name. She'd kicked off the duvet, and so she lay naked, slumbering untroubled, as if Gabriel alone made the house and the world warm enough. Diana thought how unfamiliar this body was, nipples so far apart, one dangling towards the girl's navel, everything terribly pendulous. Diana had always been small-breasted, even during pregnancy. The girl's belly was big enough to cover her pedenda, sparing the ultimate embarrassment, but as Diana looked closer, she'd realised there was a knot right there. She could see it through the stomach's stretched and transparent skin. The quivering knot reminded her of thickly woven grey and white wool, turned in on itself, wrapped over and over until the whole was the size of a small but formidable puppy. Diana knew dogs. She'd had so many. It was one of the reasons she'd gotten up for a morning walk for years. But their last dog, an old, soft Bichon Frise called Mr Walcott, had died last summer. They were certain to get another one, but Jonathan had been travelling, and Gabe had to be packed off to university, and a new puppy was a mammoth undertaking. Even a shelter midlife doggy would need such attention. Before she quite knew what she was doing, Diana clicked her right fingers and whistled low under her breath. Hey boy, hey boy. The knot wriggled delightedly. Diana scowled, perfectly ordinary Susan, who'd arrived at her house last night and lit a bomb under her entire existence. Diana saw that she'd carefully stored her engagement ring on the bedside table, close, so that she could seize it when she woke, jam it on her finger again, jam it into Diana's eye both eyes like a hot needle. The knot whined, come on boy, softly patting her hip. The knot pulled itself free from Susan's abdomen like sticking plaster. Diana didn't stop to worry whether the young woman's internal organs were exposed to the cold air or bleeding. It would serve her right. They left the house together, knot slipping joyfully down the rainy front steps raindrops gathering on Diana's bifocals like tears. She pulled her coat tighter, the gold and green tattoo on her left shoulder glimmering under the porch light. I think subconsciously I've always been aware that in order to make the world real and put it in a place where you could understand it, you needed to write it down, you needed to pin it down onto a page and then you're able to look at it and consider it and think about it. Once you begin to challenge something that is oppressive or power, once you start to challenge that and create a form that is unique to your own experience, trying to really break free of the confines of the English language and trying to find a way of creating something that is unique, you know, to decolonize the the sort of literature and the, the canon. And into that is fed, I mean, I'm really interested in surrealism. Surrealism for me 
is the sort of most potent aesthetic form or process that I've encountered. But of course, surrealism has ties to carnival and magical realism, things which are both sort of South American, Latin American and Caribbean in origin as well. So I guess something along there has to do with using words in a way that transcends the, the physical realm. The Apocrypha of O by Gael Sobot. A tree cracks like a stock whip and crashes down somewhere not too far away. Trees, bone dry from consecutive winters, with little to no rain, topple, no warning, weakened by one fire after another. And they shall break down the cities and walls, mountains and hills, trees of the wood and grasses of the meadows. Something, someone, walks with heavy stride. O grabs her crutch and moves behind a large log, lays flat, rolls her brown arms in ash slowly until they are the grey of the earth. A rogue watcher who stinks of sour skin, unwashed, stomps up to the kangaroo, hacking, sucking, probably the tail, maybe the maggots. O unsheaths a blade. The watcher mumbles, and the forest is quiet again for an instant, so close. A voice speaks, smooth and strong, like thick treacle in O's brain. The angel waiteth with a sword to cut thee in two and to destroy you. O thinks, I am that angel. I will cut the enemy in two. Trying to concentrate, straining now to listen to the watcher. Metal jabs cold and hard against the back of her head. Her mouth and tongue are gritty with dirt. Her lip splits. Front tooth smashes against wood, where there is a pleasant scent of burnt resin. I saw trees of judgment, especially vessels of the fragrance of incense and myrrh. I saw seven mountains full of fine nard and fragrant trees of cinnamon and pepper. Her mouth tastes of iron, blood. You're a scrawny little crip fuck, but you'll taste better than a festering fucking rue, the watcher snarls. O can't see her, but realises by her voice and her way of talking that she and the watcher are probably about the same age. Most of the watchers bought tickets on the space shuttles. Adapt, they said, and paid for expensive fireproof houses for themselves and helicopter ships and underground compounds, and they plundered the earth and the rivers and the skies without mercy. Adapt. Of those who stayed, few survived. Only a few rogues remain. This was surely one. A trigger clicks. Everything is moving, changing. A war cry, guttural, but so loud the charcoal trees shudder. Explosion. O opens one eye to see blood trickling down the log. She doesn't feel any pain. Maybe she is an angel. A hand grabs her arm. O shrieks as she's pulled up onto her feet. 
Milindovo stands, muscled, dark, oiled skin, their black hair braided into a sculptured circle that stands upright at the back of their head. Tattooed circles on the left side of their face. A revolutionary Marlo Kingi, small and lethal. And another voice from another book whispers, a cold sweat covers me, trembling seizes my body, and I am greener than grass. Lacking but little of death do I seem. You've been listening to Amina Attic, Leonie Ross and Gail Sobot, with Anthony Joseph and Lucy Hammer. Music composed by Dominique Lejean. Speaking Volumes presents and promotes new and underrepresented voices to diverse audiences. The Not Quite Right For Us anthology celebrates 10 years of Speaking Volumes. It's published by Flipped Eye Publishing and it features 40 international writers. The anthology is available at all good bookshops or you can order from Flipped Eye at www.flippedeye.net. For more information about Speaking Volumes, go to www.speakingvolumes.org.uk. The Not Quite Right For Us podcast is produced by Craig Garrett and Shona Hawkes in collaboration with Speaking Volumes. For information about the soundscape used in this episode, I'll pass over to Craig. The soundscape was inspired by a cosmic love story. Carl Sagan and Anne Druyan fell in love while making a mixtape of the human experience for NASA's Voyager Interstellar Message Project back in the 1970s. Audio and images, including recordings of Anne's brainwaves while in love, while she was thinking about Carl, were sent into space on both Voyager spacecraft on gold records. Sound effects for this episode came from our field recordings here in London and Epidemic Sound.